Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Kenny Ewan. Kenny is the founder of WeFarm, the world's first peer-to-peer knowledge-sharing platform for farmers. Backed by a host of impressive investors, including Local Globe, Silicon Valley-based True Ventures, and Skype and Atomico founder, Nicola Sendstrom, the vision is to become the global network for the biggest industry on earth. Kenny is committed to enacting meaningful and positive change in the world, by marrying commercial techniques with an impact-driven approach. His execution of this so far has been masterful and is a lesson to all entrepreneurs at this quite critical moment in human history. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So without further ado, we bring you Kenny Ewan. We are lucky to be joined today by Kenny Ewan, founder of WeFarm. Kenny, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to talk about WeFarm, but I shall restrain myself so that before that we can get some context about your background. So leading on from sort of your university, how did it all begin for you? Probably like uh, most great stories, uh, or um, good stories at least at this stage, uh, kind of randomly. Uh, I graduated in architecture with a degree. Um, I think the only thing I was clear about at that point was that I did not want to be an architect. <laughs> so I took a, a six-month job with a social enterprise in South America, um, helping them build construction projects. Went for my six months uh, and ended up staying for, for seven years. Oh, wow. um, so that was based out of Peru. I kind of specialized ultimately in building uh, community projects, mostly fish farms, water systems, irrigation systems uh, in indigenous communities. You were uh, managing it rather than physically or both? Both. Right. Uh, I mean, I physically did that from the, the kind of architecture backgrounds, sure. uh, uh, everything from, you know, laying cement and digging out adobe bricks to, to um, you know, thinking through bigger kind of project structures. But, you know, found something I was really passionate about. Uh, you know, they offered me a management position after my, my six months and, and, and stayed and ultimately, uh, when I left, I was kind of regional director for all of Latin America for, for the organization and, and managing offices across you know various countries in Brazil, Mexico, Belize, right. and, and wow. Peru. Uh, so yeah, it was a pretty incredible <laughs> seven years and, and changed my life, really. You're actually like somebody who's a useful gap year adventurer, somebody who, who, <laughs> yes, who does yeah. something rather than just live off the lay of the land. In terms of those community projects, what kind of stuff were you, were you giving back to the community? I know you said sort of fish projects, and, and were you empowering the community with the knowledge that you had? Yeah, so, I mean, most of the projects we did were, were you know, one of the ground rules was the community had to come and ask us for something or outline a problem. Yeah, I mean, most commonly the communities we were working with in, in the very high Andes, you know, above 4,000 meters, mm. you know, very fertile soils, but the, the extreme altitude and weather meant that they couldn't really grow anything, you know, maybe just potatoes. You know, most of the kids especially were suffering from malnutrition. So one of that, that was one of the most common problems that they came to us with and, and, and you know, fish farms that could, uh, you know, support sustainable uh, protein through, through you know, mm. tilapia or trout were, you know, the kind of solution that we came up with, we, we built purely natural fish farms. So kind of like extensions in, in natural river systems with sluice gates rather than, you know, horrible concrete pits. So, you know, that's what we did for years across the high Andes. And, and I think in terms of what came next for me in, in WeFarm, there was, you know, some some pretty powerful insights in, in that time. You know, one of which was, was seeing almost from an outside perspective the... The big NGO projects that, you know, stuff that was coming from Geneva or Washington or, you know, wherever, multi-million dollar projects that quite often local communities didn't need or want, a huge amount of, of, of waste in that. Uh, and secondly, was in the projects I was seeing uh, or doing, uh, you know, seeing the amount of innovation and, and local knowledge that was actually solving problems for people. And, and, you know, that was a kind of some of the sparks of the idea behind WeFarm was to to look at how do we start getting these kind of local solutions into into more mm. people's hands. Is, is there often a disconnect between 
the aid that, I don't know if it's still the correct term, but first world com- uh, countries are offering and the aid that's actually required on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a subjective question, uh, but my personal opinion is, yeah, hugely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the aid industry and the kind of development industry has, you know, largely grown towards you know, being able to sell itself to Western people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got to be able to sell a certain image for people to give money to things. And, and that's not necessarily, you know, in context with what's actually needed on the ground. Yeah. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that aid works best uh, for short term solutions to, you know, crises, you mm. know, whether that's natural or, or whatever. But long term development solutions, I think, very rarely come out of, of the type of things we think they do. Mm-hmm. I guess communicating that to first world countries, they want legacy. So the sustainable fishery you, you're talking about might seem a little hokey when you've got a million pounds of charity funding to deploy and they want to see, you know, a dam built that really is going to impact it for years. And, and I imagine to a degree as well, having a long term view when charities are continuously refundraising, it, it makes it difficult to, to see through that infrastructure project to its sort of nth degree where it's really going to be valuable continuously well because i mean it takes like it takes 10 years to educate the people on the ground yeah the you know the people that are being marketed the charity want results straight they want to see their money put to work but they can't see the result they can't see the results for 10 years then you can see how it's a a harder sell yeah i mean i definitely agree with all of that and i think you know just like in in you know animal charities it's far easier to raise money for saving tigers than it is for some you know species of ants that yeah. nobody cares about yeah. you know the same kind of principles apply in, in international work where you know people want to give thing money to things that they, they are simple and are kind of dumbed down and they understand you know you give mm. five pounds you get water for one person mm-hmm. but the reality is these are some of the most complex problems facing the world and you don't solve them through these kind of ultra simplistic yeah. messages always uh, and I think that that's been one of the, the major problems that I've seen is that it, it gets ultimately gets taken down to these really simple things and, and none of these problems are simple. Yeah, we had an awful thing in the charity that I'm interested of where they pointed out that it's really difficult for them to raise too much money because then they're seen to be given loads of money and then suddenly people stop feeling sorry for themselves or sorry for that, that charity and they look elsewhere to the one that seemed to be more desperate. <laughs> So it's you have like, to play this fine line between in need of the cash and obviously being successful at fundraising. Yeah, it's like the, the beggar with the arms bucket has to remove the coins and put them behind his yeah, back so exactly. he looks like he needs it. I mean, that's something we've seen, uh, you know, particularly in the early days at We Farm, where, you know, we were we were pretty successful at getting people excited about what we were doing, you know, certainly after we got over the the initial scepticism. But then ultimately, when you're applying for these kind of grants or, or prizes, you sometimes become a victim of your own success. And, yeah. you know, everybody wants the new thing, and which doesn't necessarily make much logical sense. But, you know, yeah. some of this isn't logical. Well, let's drill down into that, actually. So you went and worked with Cafe Direct, is that correct? So I was part of the startup team for the Cafe Direct Producers Foundation. Yeah. Uh, and what was, is Cafe Direct? So Cafe Direct is a coffee company that was set up by Oxfam and a few other partners years ago, about 30 years ago, the pioneers of the fair trade movement, mm. um, you know, for a long time where the, the, you know, if you were buying fair trade coffee in the UK, you were buying it from Cafe Direct, um, you know, very successful. But they always had a, a very, you know, obviously, by the, as the name suggests, a direct buying model from, from farmers themselves. Um, in 2009, they, they took the kind of bold decision to set up a foundation that was owned by the farmers and not by them as a PLC, mm. uh, which was, you know, a really exciting model. And, and myself and, and Claire Rhodes were the, the startup team for that. Um, you know, just going back to what we were talking about previously on, on the difficulties of fundraising. I, I mean, I think at, at CPF, uh, we, we did some incredible work and, you know, they're, they're now known as Producers Direct and still do incredible work. But it's very hard to raise money for, you know, sophisticated problems with farmer climate change solutions. Mm. You know, it's not a public facing thing. Uh, and I think it's, it's a great example of how, you know, it, it's not necessarily the most important work that raises the most money. Yeah, so and, and how did your role within them iterate? So you, you've obviously found that the initiative was successful um, and at some point you've obviously started to coin the idea for for we farm as it stands today 
Um, what was the sort of transition? Yeah, I mean, the idea for WeFarm or, or what would become WeFarm was, you know, initially kind of sketched out by Claire and I over over a coffee table, uh, you know, as a project for 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 CPF for the foundation. Um, we, you know, we, we raised some grant money to to do early prototypes and testing. You know, what we'd now call bootstrapping, I guess, in the in the hmm. startup world. And and you know, it, it was it was pretty exciting. I think we saw people get into it very quickly. It looked like it was something that had tremendous potential and and you know cpf were prepared to kind of take a small equity stake in it and spin it out as a as a business and as a as a tech startup uh, with a social mission which which i took on and in 2015 we launched it and you know it's been four crazy years since so it was a social enterprise at start yeah i mean i, I think we'd, we'd refer to it as a mission-driven company rather than you know social enterprise i think has all mm-hmm. sorts of connotations but yeah i mean ultimately we are a for-profit tech startup that has a mission at the heart of what we do. Yeah, so I mean, so th- I wondered that because as it went on, that I saw in your comms that it that became about finding a way of making it commercially st- sustainable. And so I was just wondering if it wasn't like that at the start, if it was just sort of like a, a real true so- social enterprise in that respect. So I think the initial idea, you know, like a lot of these things we, you know, was it was purely about solving a problem. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, growing out of, of what I'd previously discussed with experience in South America, one of the things we saw with farming in particular was, you know, climate change was starting to bring in new diseases in, you know, say in Kenya that had only ever existed in Uganda or on the other side of the world. And the best people to actually pro- provide advice to those farmers was farmers who'd been dealing with it for 20 years. Uh, and that was kind of the, the, the kind of grain of the idea of, mm-hmm. you know, how do we actually get people talking to each other, particularly in a you know, pre-internet economy and sharing ideas. So, you know, the nugget of the idea was simply that, that we started to go out and develop. Um, but I think very early, uh, the intention was to make it a business uh, and to make it, you know, sustainable and, and, and profitable. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those were not afterthoughts. They were things that we very deliberately set out to do, uh, but maintain that kind of social impact as well. Right. So when Cafe Direct put the the money and the initial money were they doing that with because it came from the foundation were they doing that with a return in mind or was it just this is another project of ours go and solve a problem uh so the initial money we got to 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 kind of do the the, the pilots was was actually from the nominate trust mm. um now known as the social tech trust i believe okay uh they gave us seventy thousand pounds to to do the initial kind of pilots mm-hmm. and, and and set this up and you know i think it that was probably still before we had bigger ideas of, of, of launching it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, eventually, you know, we, we start to think, all right, all right, this needs to go beyond just a six-month project. How do we, we make this a 10-year project to get millions of farmers involved in this? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we took on the challenge of writing a business plan very early. Um, still, you know, funny to look back on it now, but you know, still <laughs> yeah. remarkably similar to what we're, we're actually doing. Uh, and then we, we got some money from, from Google, actually, was, was where we got our kind of startup funding from. Uh, we won the the... the Google uh, Impact Challenge, which was my first big pitch in front of Peter Jones and oh, nice. uh, yeah Jimmy Wales and, and such like, which was absolutely terrifying. But you know we walked out of there with a, a large check, right? And we used that to, to set up uh, We Farm and, and, and go from there. Well, yeah, and let's get the the strap line on how anybody listening would understand what We Farm does. So We Farm is essentially a, a peer-to-peer communications network for sharing knowledge uh, that works even without the internet. Uh, so a farmer can ask us a question on SMS just about any local language. Uh, WeFarm uses machine learning uh, and the knowledge of the crowd to get them bespoke content back uh, for free. So as a sort of an, a, le- a layman's example, if I were a farmer? So, you know, say a chicken farmer in Kenya whose who's chicken is sick, or you may be a coffee farmer suffering from a disease, or you may want to try planting a new crop. I mean, obviously literally millions of things it could be. Yeah. Send us an SMS just outlining your, your problem, your question. 
when WeFarm receives the question, we use machine learning to essentially analyze what, what you're telling us. You know, what is the intent of the question? Where are you? What are you farming? As much context and data as we can get out of that. Uh, and essentially on the other side of that algorithm, then saying, given all of this analysis, who do we think is the best person to answer this one individual question? So essentially, you know, one person out of a million with a question and matching them to one person out of a million with an answer. Okay, so it's different from Quora, where people post a question and then anyone can answer, is you actually direct the question so that hopefully the response is, is valid and useful rather than a crock of... Uh proverbial shite <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i certainly hope that's a fair way of summing it up uh you know our, our median time to answer a question now is is, is 13 minutes oh, wow. uh, even without any in, in internet oh. and i think that you know it kind of always surprised me that, that more people like Cora haven't looked into that model of actually saying no we're picking you to yeah. answer this one individual question yeah. uh which i think is it's just a more powerful dynamic yeah. than anybody can do it when it's, it's quite intimate i mean the example i used to use to try and understand it was like aqa although obviously that was for very nebulous information. I mean, the orders of efficiency you're allowing these farmers is like, you've, you've taken them out of the sort of intellectual dark ages to really provide them a platform that can completely transform their lives. And what, you know, to give people listening, how many farmers do you have on currently? Uh, we're now just under 1.5 million. Uh, we should hit 1.5 million sometime in the next few days. Wow. Awesome. Um, about 2,000 joining a day on average uh, at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, it's really growing you know, very quickly at the moment. Um, you know, obviously pretty unprecedented network for, for offline populations. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think for us what's more exciting is that people actually use it. Um, so, you know, on the average day, we're actually now uh, processing more more questions and answers than, than Cora, you know, given the, oh, the wow. previous example. How many questions have been asked? Uh, so um, on most days, we're averaging about 40,000 questions and answers a day, um, sometimes more. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're doing information sharing, I think, on a global level, even though that that's really mostly in two countries, uh, in Kenya and Uganda, where, you know, we've been uh, building uh, penetration to date. So how the user acquisition, how is that going at the rate it's going at? Because these are people who aren't on the internet tweeting about it and sharing. And so is that, yeah, how are they? Yeah, I and mean, it's not it's not a world where Kim Kardashian tweeting about you gets you uh, <laughs> yeah. a few million users overnight. Um, it might, might be, I don't know. Uh, you know, most of our user acquisition comes through, I mean, virality is, is increasingly important for us of just farmers telling other farmers. Um, uh, our biggest kind of paid acquisition channel is radio. Uh, so we do a lot of radio work, a lot of content-driven work, very little, mm. you know, what we'd call traditional advertising. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously the system and all the questions and answers gives us an insight into what farmers are seeing and experiencing and caring about. Um, and we do, you know, just 10 minutes of airtime on, on some of the problems. Uh, and we find that a really effective way of getting, a, you know, two, 3,000 people sometimes in a single kind of 10-minute show wow. that will sign up. Um, uh, it's a great way to build a brand as well. Which mm. just shows you how much people must be craving this knowledge. Um, because pre presumably, economically speaking, for these farmers, it, it can make a significant difference to their livelihoods, their families, um, and whatnot. I mean, do you, do, you, do you get the stories back of the people's lives you're tra transforming? Yeah, we do. Um, obviously, get a lot of feedback in these kind of things. You know, we get uh, we have an open feedback channel that anybody on our system can send us feedback for free uh, through SMS, and that, that pipes into our Slack in the office. So yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we, we see it all—the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, we, we don't, um, you know, obviously help everyone, but I think most interestingly, we're now you know looking into the possibilities of using machine learning to actually look at you know at impact and, and how we're uh, p potentially affecting farmers across a, a massive scale. Um, you know, doing things like looking at um, references, you know, across millions of pieces of content to, to harvest and yields and being able to compare that to national averages and, and start to see is there a difference between a farmer using WeFarm uh, and not using WeFarm uh, and starting to see some, 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 you know, cool results out of that. Um, you know, I think 
often the kind of the way you assess impact in the in the development world the charity world is, is still pretty old school it's uh you know a survey and you know people asking you you know have you seen a difference with this thing uh, which is not you know it's it's well it's obviously a lot of bias in that from the start um so just like using that kind of machine learning and natural language processing i think is for me i find that quite an exciting way of, of looking at impact because i was asking ollie beforehand do you get to a point where a sandboxed environment almost has the, the perfect answer to, let's say, potato blight or whatever it might be? And at that point, what's the value to the user of not going to you, the central repository of information, but going to a farmer to then re-answer that question versus having it just stored in the cloud and be accessible to push an SMS back out to him? After understanding that question, uh, so we do both. Um, you know, obviously we have a big enough bank of knowledge now where there are some questions that we just answer automatically. Mm. Um, um, but I think part of the the reason that we get such engagement is because we're we're still pushing content to people. Yeah. Um. You know, we often see that a person will ask a question. You know, quite recently after being uh, asked one themselves. Uh, so you know, it's great for engagement and keeping people you know part of the network. Uh, and the the reality is there's two sides to it. There's there's some questions that there's just one answer to that you know you can ping back extremely easily, and there's a lot of things which are very dynamic in which the answer may be different depending on your soil type or your region, um, and maybe different from one week to the other. So you know part of what we try to use machine learning to do is, is start to look at the differences between those things. Can, um, will, will farmers be allowed to have conversations with other farmers? Like if I get into an SMS discussion with somebody and he gives me a good answer, could I build on that and keep? messaging back and forth within reason within reason yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean it's something we're looking into at the moment it's it's part of our, our, our kind of roadmap that you know we, we've seen that obviously people especially given the medium of SMS which is quite short mm. you know, people often have a follow up question or a clarification and then we are now looking into building a kind of unique link between somebody who's asked and somebody who's answered so that you can you know have maybe you know four or five follow up messages um, you know, one of the other things in that is also, you know, you, you might ask a question about rabbits and get a great answer back. But then six months later, you may ask another rabbit question and, you know, the system just chooses someone entirely different mm. uh, where actually you want the answer from this person you've started to build a relationship with. Um, so looking at those, you know, those kind of connections between people, almost like a social network, but, you know, obviously for small business owners, um, uh, you know, very domain specific. And that's probably one of the next steps for us. Mm. Did you know from the start that it would have to be SMS based rather than Internet based? Um, I, I don't think it was part of day one uh, yeah. for us, but by day two, I think we'd, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'd realized that... Pre presumably at some point, there's going to be that infrastructure. I, mean, I know now in Kenya, they don't they tend not to have bank accounts. They use M-Pesa, which is mobile-based. One would hope that they would eventually get there where they have proper internet connection and, and Wi-Fi, and, and will that affect your, your business at all? Yeah, so, I mean... The data we have from our users suggests that the barrier is not the smartphone at this stage, it's the data prices. So more and more, maybe up to 30% of our users now have a smartphone, mm -hmm. uh, but data is prohibitively expensive. So they're still using our smartphone as a feature phone, mm, right. uh, you know, to call an SMS. So, you know, only maybe three or 4% of our users are, are regular internet users. Uh, but obviously over the next five years, that is going to change and, and get to an inflection point. I think for us as a business, we look at it, you know, the, the example we, we always use for this is Netflix. of you know, built a massive brand and, and reputation through sending DVDs through the post to people. Um, you know, they saw the future coming and were able to tra transition that trust into the next generation of online content. I think we'd, we'd want to do something similar of, you know, if we have 10 million farmers, you know, maybe more trusting uh, WeFarm, using it to, 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 to help their business to buy products through, you know, just because they get a smartphone and an internet connection doesn't mean they, they lose that trust mm -hmm. as long as we're there waiting for them. Sorry, presumably your, your visibility over the needs and the supply chain is unprecedented in terms of you can um, identify areas that are picking up activity in internet and but user consumer habits are changing so you're, you're ready to deliver your solution to them 
almost immediately once they sort of come out of the sort of internet dark ages. Yeah, I mean, one of one of the things that we we always say is that if if you give a smartphone and an internet connection to a farmer in Uganda at the moment, you know, the content they're accessing, generally speaking, is from a completely different population. Uh, it's not written by their neighbor or someone down the road. It's it's not necessarily relevant for them. Mm. Um, but we are building that relevancy and that content that is written by them, um, and you know, have already a bank of millions and millions of of questions and answers. Uh, that's only going to grow and, and be there waiting for them online. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, in terms of looking at, at things in the supply chain, I mean, that's one of the things we do is that aggregated, aggregated data piece uh, to, to look at patterns in the supply chain. Uh, we also launched our first marketplace in November last year. Awesome. Uh, where, you know, we're starting to provide access to, to products and services to farmers. Uh, so, you know, starting to, I mean, our vision has always been not, not to build a question and answer system, but to build an ecosystem for, for global agriculture and, and starting to, to get there. Mm. Stepping back for a second, and it's sort of, I'm going to crowbar this in because, so we've got an event, event tonight with General Assembly at which Ed is doing the keynote. And yes. the, the theme is uh, from idea to investment. And so what I want to know is how you actually, and, and it's really difficult in your case, how, because your platform becomes useful when you have a, a critical mass of users. So how on earth did you get it to that point where there were enough users who could answer the questions in a quick enough time and, and valuably it? Yeah, with with difficulty and, um, you know, the honest answer is probably in the beginning pretty badly. Right. Uh, But you just kind of have to throw yourself into it. So, I mean, one of the the great things that came out of our, you know, work with the Cafe Direct Producers Foundation was that we we knew quite a lot of farming groups on the ground uh, through other projects and what we'd been doing. So we we almost had that audience in which to seed we farm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we went to one of those cooperatives we knew in Kenya on our launch day. Uh, got you know 50 of their kind of lead farmers that they had in the cooperative and, and ran a competition to see which one could sign up the most farmers uh, over the, the next three days and offered you know a small prize uh, and that took us to our first 500 users in you know the space of a few days yeah and it's just kind of things like that that you know you know i remember back in the early days just seeing somebody ask a question on the system was like like someone's asked a question and, you know <laughs> yeah. a lot of excitement you know now that's you know one second uh you know on average somebody asks a question um you know seeing it, it still gives me goosebumps to see like hundreds yeah, of people signing up a day um but yeah i mean you, you just kind of have to to, to see that as much as you can um you know, it's, it's free right so it's, free. It's, so it's just a communication thing if you can get it in front of people and it's something that they need, yeah. um, they're going to get on. So it's just getting that word out there initially. Exactly. And yeah. as you said before, in a, in a pre-internet economy, that, that's challenging. But, you know, it's also, you know, one of the great things for us is we're not necessarily competing against very much. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we got there. I mean, initially, our algorithms were, were pretty basic. Sure. Um, but it'd be, it'd be crazy to over-engineer fit before you knew what the, the questions were going to be. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a bit scattergun. You know, we would get a question and the system would basically like, oh, you, I think you could answer this question. And, <laughs> you know, we, we learned a lot, I guess, through obviously building up the, the learning mechanisms. And then, you know, eventually we were able to bring uh, tech talent in-house and data science. And, you know, the, the sophistication of it now is, is night and day compared to what it was. So yeah. would, it, would it be to the degree that it can understand the the climate in the region I am and match it to somewhere geographically that has a very similar climate as well as crop, as well as, you know, whatever else potentially yeah i mean we're, we're it's a kind of constant work in progress for us all of those kind of different elements um you know i mean one of the things that we we look at is that you know as a kind of indicator of how sophisticated it is is, is the percentage of questions that we're answering within within a 24 hours and now within one hour which 
if you look back to the beginning of 2018, even was you know 45 percent of questions maybe getting answered within an hour. That's now touching 80 percent on most days, which I, you know is not a complete picture, but it is an indicator of we're taking a piece of information and getting it to the most relevant person pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're getting there. These assemblies of knowledge are, are, are fantastic to me. I mean, you pointed out with Jimmy Wales is that you're not having to gamify your network. People literally want to contribute to, I guess there's some game theory to it of if we all contribute, we'll get answers back. But it is a, it's a real cause for positivity when you see systems like this in place. And it's why I love WeFarm, because I just think you're seeing human nature kind of at its cooperative best. Yeah, I mean, I think, so people ask us this question all the time of why, why do people answer questions? Um, I mean, obviously, there is a dynamic, I think, in all societies of this. It's it's how Stack Overflow or, mm. you know, Wikipedia or any of these things work because people want to share their knowledge. But I think we have a much more powerful dynamic in that because, generally speaking, we're asking people who have never been asked before. You know, the status quo in, in this space has um, generally been to, mm. to talk down to people. You know, we're not by, by far from the first people to recognize the problem of, of lack of access to information in small-scale farming. But governments and NGOs have very much tackled it from the top down of, you know, essentially poor people just need to be told what to do. You know, we'll mm. run trainings and we'll, we'll give information unto people. Uh, Well-intentioned, but, you know, ultimately that's the way the information flow has gone. Uh, and we are certainly at any scale, the first people to turn around to a coffee farmer who's been doing it for 30 years and saying, actually, I think there's something valuable in that 30 years of coffee farming. Please, can you help share that with other farmers? Yeah, I think there was a really nice, um, I think it was TechCrunch or FT that the first line was a quote from you and it said, um, we're working with people who've never previously been asked for their opinion. Yeah, and I think that's true and it's powerful and it's it's one of the reasons we get such high engagement. Yeah. Well, something nice to touch on here as well as you're dealing with small farmers, which are very distinct from the North American uh, prairie farms and the huge industrial complexes, which I guess to some degree some of these farmers have to compete against. So being able to aggregate their knowledge. I mean, what is the position as you see it between big industrial farming uh, enterprises and these small farmers and and do they act in harmony or do they just get outcompeted on price? I mean, that's a big question. I think uh, people probably underestimate just how much of our global supply chain comes from small-scale farming, mm. uh, particularly in the kind of the cash crops like coffee and cocoa and, and sugarcane and, you know, those kind of tropical uh, or subtropical crops, um, you know, 80, 90% of which probably come from a small farm. Really? Um, you know, ultimately there are there are big industrial coffee farms or pineapple farms out there, but the vast majority of a lot of these crops are coming from small-scale small, small farms. I mean, I think the FAO estimates that about 85%, maybe 80% of the entire global supply chain is coming from small farms. It's, it's a billion people um, that huh. are running small farms. Is that sort of where fair trade came from? Because if they're all the small farms growing these, but they had no channel for actually exporting them to the, the right places and then sort of a middleman came in and, and took, the, took the margin basically and then fair trade came in to redress that a bit. I think theoretically, yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the fair trade idea was around that kind of more direct relationships um, and trying to get the, the farmer a fairer deal in those prices. You know, I think, you know, well, fair trade has been pretty successful as a, a kind of branding exercise in the Western yeah. world. It, it hasn't necessarily been hugely successful in, in changing those relationships on the ground. It's, right. it's such a mammoth task. I mean, it, you know, one of the, I think, quotes that, that fair trade uses that of the average dollar of coffee sold in the US, probably only one cent of it is going to the original farmer. Um, mm. And that's probably still largely, largely true. And it's, it's ultimately one of the, the big things that we see the potential for we farm for at the you know, point where 20 million coffee farmers are using we farm. Mm. You know, can we start to create those or, you know, decentralize the supply chain ourselves and actually connect those farmers more directly to, to an international buyer? Um, so yeah, that's one of the things that we are, we're interested in as well.
Pretty. And would that be part of your strategy for commercial sustainability? Yeah, so, I mean, at the moment, as I say, we just launched our first marketplace, and that's really designed around getting uh, good prices and, and good quality products to farmers, you know, the fertilizers, the seeds, uh, you know, the things that they're using. Um, you know, the, the supply chain for this stuff in, in Kenya and East Africa is... is it's much like a cocaine supply chain in some ways where mm-hmm. it gets cut with every intermediary <laughs> dealer. And, right. you know, I think the UN estimates that 91% of fertilizer in Kenya contains at least some fake product. Um, wow. So, again, I think, you know, now that we represent literally millions of small-scale farmers, uh, we can start to, to, to improve that. Um, and obviously, that's a business model for us. You know, we're already seeing some exciting kind of uh, metrics coming out of the marketplace. And, you know, I think we see it as a really great way to generate significant amounts of revenue for the business. But ultimately, I think it's just the first stage for us. We, we'd like that to be a two-way marketplace, ultimately, mm-hmm. where farmers are not only you know buying their products and services through WeFarm, but able to, to then sell their crops out where they want to. That's awesome. So you could uh, pull together basically um, groups of farmers and, and buy wholesale on their behalf. And that, that's extraordinary that people are, are lacing down fertilizers and stuff. It means they're kind of getting screwed on, on all sides of the equations, like being sold inferior product to grow crops not as well as they could be. What's your concern at the moment with sort of last mile logistics in places like Africa and improving um, the delivery of these you know is there any ways to improve that that don't involve the roads and infrastructure I'm sure there are I mean there's some, some quite cool companies out there that are doing things with drones yeah and- um, yeah, but you know, I mean, ultimately, this is a big challenge for us as well. But I mean, the situation is improving. You know, we are we work with retailers and, and local communities that you know we authorize as we farm retailers uh, and enable them to 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 kind of be the 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 selling point for stuff that we're channeling through the marketplace. Um, but that kind of last mile piece is is a huge challenge. But you know, the reality is that most farmers are coming to market regularly anyway, so they're not expecting. You know, there's no dynamic of expecting a delivery mm-hmm. to your door. Um, you know, most people don't have an address anyway. Um, you know, sort of thing that people like What Three Words are trying to tackle. <laughs> there we go. Mm. Um, but you know, I think as this becomes a more established supply chain, the opportunities are going to be there. I think the approach we've always taken for We Farm, and you know, uh, touching upon the as you were saying, grouping farmers together to sell. And people have had these ideas before, but no one's had a platform in which to to do it. You know, we've kind of come at this space almost the opposite direction from everybody else. Yeah. Where rather than try and build a marketplace or you know, a cooperative online or whatever. We, we've come out of this, like, let's build a massive platform, uh, which millions of people trust and use, and then we'll start introducing services to them. Then we'll start introducing marketplaces and way to buy and sell, uh, which I think is a far easier thing to do when you have a million people than it is when you have, you know, two. Yeah. Presumably for that, for that sort of strategy, it requires a lot of backing, because presumably you ran for a while before... I don't know if you, if you are actually commercially sustainable now, but it, at the start you would have needed a lot of backing to achieve that amount of growth. Yeah, I mean we're I mean we're generating revenue now, but we're still we're very much a growth uh, yeah. based startup. Yeah. You know, our, our our goal here is to to build the platform for the entire global small scale agricultural space. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean we've 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 done two venture capital rounds today, uh, one in the UK and one in the US, and are currently mm. in the middle of doing our third. Well, I thought oh I thought one was really recent. Um, I mean, it's amazing how quickly time flies. Yeah. Uh, so we did one uh, back in 2016 that was led by Local Globe uh, yeah. here in London. Yeah. And then at the end of 2017, uh, we did a, a big seed round with uh, True Ventures in Silicon Valley. Um, that right. was 2017? End of 2017. We didn't announce it until about April of 2018. Right. Uh, so I mean, a year ago. that has got all the big names on it, that round. I mean, getting True Ventures to back us was unexpected but you know absolutely huge for us i mean they're behind peloton ring yeah uh fitbit you know they're doing you know one of the the best seed funds in in, in the whole of the u.s in the silicon valley scene and um but some know, of the individuals as well like nicholas enstrom and uh matt munnenweg 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think um, in, in venture capital space, once you get one big name, everybody yeah, wants true. involved, and you know, it's it's yeah. there's a, a you know a certain uh, herd mentality to this kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah you missed out on DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, he's been active. I can't remember yeah, where he invested. Been, in I've, I've met Leo. Uh, have, you? have you, Leo? I say. Yeah, uh, yeah no, go on. Um, yeah, very briefly at the uh, Scottish Business Awards a couple of years ago, I had a, a meet and greet. Um, well, he's very passionate about um, climate issues, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, if he's listening, he should definitely get involved. I wish he he's was a regular listener. <laughs> he's a regular listener. I heard Jimmy Wales heard retweeted anyway. us the other day, so he's he's been listening. Well, he's yeah. not been listening. I don't know. Maybe he just retweets. But so, actually, as a UK company going to San Francisco, was it difficult to get access to people like True Ventures? I mean, how? What was your end? Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it is. I mean, I've just spent two weeks there, you know, raising our next round, and even with a you know a top Silicon Valley investor, it's still hard. Mm. Um, you know, I think maybe forty or fifty percent of of funds in the US won't look at a non-Bay Area company. Um, you know, right. never, never mind. Bay Area. Right. I mean, oh. never mind Africa and ag tech and all those kind of other, you know, weird things that we have around us. Uh, but there are, you know, in the US, you know, probably, you know, a few in the, the UK and European scene and probably more in the US who are truly conviction-led, you know, VCs who are truly looking for that, you know, almost crazy stuff that no one else is, is touching mm. and true or definitely, you know, they're... Uh, the type of fund that are looking for really genuine global ideas that no one else is thinking about. And, and so I think there was a really natural fit with us. So you're pitching the like, we're going to be the, the global network for for farming. Yeah, I mean, that that is our ambition. Like, I mean, this it, it sounds like a throwaway line, but small-scale agriculture is literally the biggest industry on earth. It's mm. a billion people. It's 80% of the global supply chain. It's four out of five of the most traded commodities on earth, you know, apart from oil, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and no one's built a platform for it. Yeah. Well, and when we talk about impact, because it's such a buzzword at the moment, impact investing, impact investing. If you can get access to an information exchange with all these farmers on it, and if, if you can create a 1% improvement in their practices in terms of the amount of fertilizer consumed, that is a huge, 1 billion people using like 1% less fertilizer. It's like a huge effect in terms of the, the, for the betterment of the planet or climate practices or sustainable agriculture. It's, it's, I heard something really interesting um, earlier. So, you know, um, cows contribute a lot to agriculture of cows, uh, contributes a lot to global warming and climate change. Apparently, if you mix seaweed, some sort of seaweed product into their, what what you're feeding them, it reduces the amount of carbon, methane damage by 95%. Huh. So if you could, I mean, obviously there is problematic to just suddenly apply apply that everywhere and obviously there's a cost about getting the seaweed. But, if you can get to a point where you can communicate that really quickly, yeah, suddenly huge. you can have a massive effect in a short time. It, well, to my way of thinking, it's way better to give you a million pounds to go and acquire another 500,000 users than it is to put a million pounds into something that's not seen the light of day that may be solving a more niche problem. But, I mean, A skitter. Yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> yeah. something, yeah, exactly, an electric scooter so people don't have to, to drive yeah. as much. But it's, I, cause that, that's why I love WeFarm because I think it's got the tech excitement to it of one of these sort of scalable platforms. It's got the kind of global stamp of, of approval and, and some degree in the valley, the sort of virtue signaling that, that goes on. So it kind of cuts many different angles. With that in mind, you said small farmers. Would you be in a position to help farmers in, you know, America, North America, like smaller farms there? Um, I mean, potentially, we actually, we get a fair number of requests um, from farmers in the Western world, you know, Wales, Switzerland, all sorts of places. So farmers who are kind of interested in that dynamic of sharing knowledge with each other. You know, I think it's something fairly universal that that humans want to use. Mm. Uh, It's probably not our our niche and our specialty at the moment. I mean, where where we really add significant value is, is to farmers that probably don't have any other access to information systems. And, you know, there are people working on very sophisticated, you know, smart systems for farms in the Western world, smart tractors, all the rest of it. Uh, 
uh, and, and you know, I guess the big vision for us is probably mostly focused on developing markets. You know, the the billion small scale farmers, the vast vast majority are in sub Saharan Africa and, and Southeast Asia. You know, 130 million in India alone. Um, but yeah, I mean, sure, why not? I mean, uh, you know, at the point where we are becoming that global player, you know, I, I would like to see us be used everywhere. So actually, you're pushing it a little bit into the sort of future. Do you, would you guys integrate with sort of some of the satellite data going around to sort of keep tabs on? the landscape the farming the degradation going on is that of any interest to you or google with them backing you yeah so i mean one of the the i mean i've always thought that the biggest social impact we can create through reform is actually through the data i mean i hope we give information to individual people that is valuable to them and you know we now do have good evidence that it does support farmers to yield more to generate more income but the power of our data is is huge, I think. Mm. Um, you know, looking at the potential to track disease outbreaks, foot and mouth disease, coffee rust, whatever it might be. You know, it might take months for that to come to light in rural Africa at the moment. You know, we could potentially do that in a couple of hours. Uh, at the point where, you know, you can, you can start to alert local, you know, NGOs or local government about these kind of things. You know, you're potentially supporting and helping people that aren't even using your platform. Um, and some of the power to do that forecasting drought and disease you know there's obviously commercial value in that for us as a business but like humongous social uh, impact potential I think as well because that's part of my uncertainty with the, the activities of NGOs is it's really hard to know what the impact on the ground is of them going and let's say planting loads of trees like does that does that help what does it do to the ecosystem because sometimes it's very easy to just go go put in this kind of tree because and it's like it, there's a biodiversity issues and all sorts and yeah i'd just be interested to know if that's combined with that sort of very data-led approach that you, it's something you want to solve yeah i mean definitely i mean i've seen examples of exactly that where you know where i worked in in peru um eucalyptus trees had been recommended for for decades there were you know perfect trees everyone thought you know they grow extremely quickly very hardwoods and they're they're very straight growing so they're kind of perfect building material uh, and then, of course, eventually everyone figured out that they're desert trees, you know, by origin, and we're sucking up all of the water systems and, you know, we're ru- ruining habitats and, and such like. And, you know, it often takes a few years for people to cotton on to these. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect solution. Uh, so I've got some experience with that. And, and, yeah, I mean, I think we see the power of having a united platform for agriculture, you know, commercially, socially, um, you know, in, in terms of the sustainability aspect. Um, you know, it's all stepping stones for us at the point where we have literally tens of millions of farmers. We can help them with that 1% less fertilizer um, with maybe not using fertilizer at all, but a much more mm. sustainable, you know, organic solution. You know, it's going to take us a while to get there. But with every step and every new farmer that kind of joins us, we have more potential, I think, to, to affect these things. Yeah, I mean, if you're at 1.5 million farmers now and you're entering the super funded real scale up stages, like potentially it won't be that long. I hope not. I mean, yeah. not, not quite super funded yet, but uh, right. yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe pretty soon. But yeah, I mean, that, that's the idea. I mean, I think we've spent like two or three years learning the playbooks uh, in mm. the tech language, learning how we acquire users. We're now learning a lot about the monetization side and building out the marketplace. Um, you know, I think we'll you know look to really consolidate that over this A round phase for the next eighteen months, and then the idea is really to do a big growth round to take this globally. Right. Uh, you know, we've learned the lessons now. Let's replicate it in twenty different countries. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And then and then SoftBank. <laughs> God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've had our f- first meeting with SoftBank, which went really I'm well. I'm not surprised and, uh, you have. Yeah. I'm really not surprised you have. There's a serious vision behind them, don't they? Mm. Massive. Yeah. Uh, and I think something that kind of appeals to to them and their philosophy about things as well. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's you know, there, there's so much potential out there. But yeah, you know, also trying to focus the team on on just winning the the everyday battles. Sure. Sure. You know, like every company, you know, all these things sound great, but you know, every day we have to kind of struggle to get get through, you know, a, a myriad of challenges. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, yeah. So, so in terms of your um, 
your your business model side of things, I understand that there's money's been made off the marketplace, but um, is it largely a B2B model at the moment in terms of revenue? Generated. Largely. I mean, I think where we've generated most of the revenue today has been that data piece, you know, helping companies look into their supply chain, looking at the aggregated data that comes out of our of our system. So do they pay you a licensing model to get access to that data for a yeah, I mean, theoretically, I think most of the work we've done has been fairly kind of small scale pilots, you know, paid, but, you know, you know, both of us learning from each other mm. uh, kind of thing. Um, but I think what we're really focused on now is the marketplace angle. Um, we're already seeing you know pretty incredible traction coming out of that. You know, we only launched it in November and already 20 plus percent of the pharmacies have bought through it have already bought again. And, and you know, we've always believed that we're building a value proposition for farmers mm. and, and, and starting to see that happen is, 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 is awesome. And I think. You know, we have a very low cost of acquisition of a user, about 30 cents. Um, and so it doesn't take much for this to start, start become a, a kind of engine of, of sustainability and profitability. Um, and I think that's what we want to make sure we're building. Um, you know, as we look towards that super funding and such like, we need to show that not only can we be massively scalable in the information side of things, but that we are massively scalable in the revenue side of things. I don't think, you know, personally, I've always believed there's nothing wrong with having both social impact and massive commercial uh, potential. I mean, I truly believe those are the kind of things that are going to change the world, yeah. uh, to use the, the, the buzz phrase. Um, and so, you know, we, we are determined, I think, to prove both sides of those kind. Yeah, I mean, I think the mistake that people often make when they think about social impact is that they sort of misconstrue it and think it's philanthropy. Hmm. And so actually, you really want to tie these commercial strategies to an impact-led approach in order to make you know, the, the real meaningful changes, not just you know, developing an app for, I don't know, dog litter or something, <laughs> you know, something that's not But they're silly, highly but efficient. You're right. The very definition of a startup operating with lean principles is your capital will be used as effectively as possible should the end outcome be aligned, right? So yours is to actually affect the lives of the farmer. So the more money goes in, the more farmers you get, the more lives you affect. Not every startup operates that way. Sometimes it can be lost into R&D spend or, or it, a product that never sees the light of day that will be an agritech product. But yeah. uh, in this specific example, you're, 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 you're spot on, yeah. It is the most efficient way, I think, to, to affect that change. But it's like if you're solving a, one of the biggest problems, surely you want the, the capital to hire the best talent to reward those who are yeah. you know dedicating their their time to it absolutely i mean it's, it's something that i'm really passionate about actually is is you know even within charities trying to change some of those mentalities um you know where you know a lot of the charity models works really well at small scale for local soup kitchens for those kind of small scale you know charity projects but you know we're now looking at a lot of charities that are trying to solve the biggest problems on earth um, and you don't do that by not hiring great talent mm. you know it's uh, you know somebody pointed out much smarter than me that it, it's kind of crazy as a society that we want to financially incentivize people to go and work in a stock exchange more than to get the brightest minds of our generation working on these challenges yeah. uh, and there's nothing yeah. wrong with paying proper salaries to people to work yeah. on them agreed um, and i think that's something we really do need to shift the dynamic on and i think where you know social enterprise or mission-driven tech, whatever you want to call it, I think you're now seeing a second generation come through. Where you know the first generation was very much have a normal business and then give something to charity. Mm. You know, give a pair of shoes or a donation or 20p out of every pound or whatever it might be. And I think you're now seeing a second generation where actually the social impact is just embedded in the engine of business. Uh, and that is what I think we're passionate about at We Farm, and, and, and uh, I know a lot of people are getting on side with. Yeah, how do you feel about climate change generally? I don't like it. No, I hate it. I'm really worried about it. But I mean, from from a wee farm perspective, is it is it? I mean, it's not it's not really a risk that you can factor in because it's a risk that just applies generally to everyone. But I think it is going to be small scale farmers that get affected first, and 
flooding and drought almost simultaneously. Absolutely. I mean, I think that kind of on the front line of climate change sounds like a newspaper headline, but it's yeah. it's absolutely true. Uh, actually, one of the biggest projects we did at uh, the Cafe Direct Foundation before, before we farm was on climate change for tea farmers uh, and actually got one of the, the universities to model out climate change over the next 50 years. Mm. In and that place? In, in Uganda, right. uh, this was in some of Kenya. And, you know, a lot of which, you know, tea is a monoculture. It's whole landscapes and communities. And a one degree temperature difference essentially makes tea, um, you know, unviable. Uh, and you we're know, already past that, right? We? And the big multinationals obviously will just move a hundred miles up the road, or you know, wherever it is to you know where tea is now viable again, and then entire communities are you know left without any kind of income. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously the, the the tropics is a very kind of traditionally stable climate where the rains came at very fixed times, which you're now seeing dramatically change. So yeah, I mean, I think small scale farmers are, are obviously they're they abuse part of the supply chain in every sense and, mm. and they are going to be the people that feel this the most and already are yeah what happens when you get the question on we farm how do i stop climate change <laughs> we, we, we do get we do get some big questions like that though that even machine learning is uh, uh unable to answer um, but a lot of the questions we get um you know anecdotally you know 30 40 percent are in some way related to climate change of people seeing diseases they haven't seen before right. Right. uh you know animals behaving differently these are the symptoms of it Right. Um, and this is, you are genuinely seeing, say, you know, coffee grows in much the same microclimates wherever it is in the, in the globe. You know, a coffee farm in Peru looks very much like a coffee farm in Uganda. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And diseases that have only existed potentially in the other side of the world through slight changes are now becoming, you know, uh, major problems in other parts of the world. So, you know, we're already seeing uh, the, the impact of this. It's one of the big projects we've actually done on the data side is, um, you know, compare our, our human side of it to the actual data side mm -hmm. of it. So obviously the meteorologists have, you know, lots of weather data, whether it's hot or it's cold or whatever. Yeah. But how does that affect the way that people ask questions on WeFarm? Um, you know, so if we can see that things are getting colder or it's raining more than it was this time last year, can you see a, a trend or a difference in the way that people are talking to each other? Uh, which is a really interesting project for well, us. Well, of course, because generations of farmers will forgive events that happen a couple of times in a lifetime, they'll be like, you know, your, your grandparents saw this happen. This is not unbeknown for the area to happen. Whereas you'll know the sentiment will change and be significantly less confident if it's something that none of the community, because if you're a farmer every day and you've grown coffee for the last 40 to 50 years in your family, you'll know what to expect and how to sort of mitigate for these things. Um, whereas if they're seeing things that they've never seen before, yeah. uh, it's pretty, it's terrifying. Mm. Um, and the worst thing is, is that with all of these issues, I think, the people causing it are so divorced from the outcome, which is that, as you rightfully said, loads of people are being supplied by small farmers. But when you go to the supermarket aisle and just pick up your bag of coffee roast, you have no idea. You just assume it's one company, which has been put under a marketing label and, and served up to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's there's obviously been a growing trend in, in, you know, most of the Western markets towards this kind of origin and, uh, mm. you know, where does your products come from? And people kind of are, are, I think, more conscious than they were 10 years ago. But overall, as a society, I mean, no, I mean, most people probably don't even know, uh, you know, how tea starts as a, as a yeah. plan or, you know, all of those kind of things. And it, it, it's there is a remarkable divorce between the two ends of the supply chain. And even if you do know, like, it's still hard to actually act on it. You feel like as an individual, you know, lots of people I know are trying to eat less meat because that has quite a big effect. Right. But, I mean, it's going to take, given the rate things are happening, it's going to take more than those individual changes, which which have to happen as well. But it's going to take a lot more than that to, to counteract 
what's what's going on yeah i mean i think it's also really difficult for consumers to to kind of separate the marketing spin from the reality yeah is that obviously increasingly brands are aware of the fact that they have to have some sort of social impact or project yeah. and they're all talking about we do this or we plant this number of trees or we help gangs or or whatever and it's we help gangs <laughs> yeah i mean there's, there's all of this stuff and it's it's you know it's one of the things that cafe direct you know faced a lot of they were the pioneers of this space you know you know 20 years ago if you wanted to buy an ethical coffee you bought cafe direct but mm. you know in the modern day you what you just look at a shelf and everybody is saying the same things and it's impossible to know how much of that is entirely superficial and starbucks pen, planting ten thousand trees don't know if that's real but just as an example yeah. uh you know it, that's nothing it's it's you know literally pennies for them how can you separate that from you know the company that's actually doing really good stuff and mm. i think unless you're you, you do an incredible amount of, of digging yeah, yeah. it's really difficult to know like, you know do you know about b corp status of course yeah i think that's that's quite a good way but it's only I mean, for the everyday consumer to go i'm going to look up to see that if this coffee brand is big up over this one, right. like that's that's quite it's quite intense to do that. And there's now en- endless numbers of seals and certificates. You know, I mean, even in coffee, there's you know rainforest and organic yeah. and, and fair trade, and yeah. you know again, like you know everybody's at it in some way or other, and it's impossible to know what the differences are. Yeah, just sloganeering. Yeah. Well, because there's also, and I would like to get your opinion on this. There's going to be a bit of a population crisis. They assume that sub-Saharan Africa is going to be a cause for a huge population growth in the next sort of few decades. Um, are you seeing the effects of that already in terms of mouths to feed? I, I, I don't think we are seeing the effects of it necessarily yet. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people quite often ask us if we see farming going the same way as the Western world where, you know, kind of dozens of small farms eventually kind of merge into one super farm, mm. uh, which is, I guess, what we've seen ultimately in the UK and other you know economies. Uh, and actually, I think certainly in the short to medium term, it's likely to go in the opposite direction. You know, one of the big problems they have is, you know, parents having, you know, 12 children and the land then having to be split up amongst 10 kids or, you know, six uh, you know, male kids or whatever it might be in the local culture. Um, and you start to see this massive amount of land pressure where farms are getting ultimately divided into sizes that are, you know, unsustainable, that don't actually grow any kind of income. Um, mm. and, and there's, you know, quite a few places in, in, in East Africa where that's starting to become a problem. So, you know, it's, it's related to population growth. But, you know, ultimately, we are not growing enough food as a global society to feed everyone that is going to live in this planet in, in 10 years time mm. um, or 20 years time. Um, the, the, the massive scale super farms in the Western world are probably pretty close to peak production. Yeah. You can probably eke out a few more percentage points. But really what's going to change that is the small scale farms um, and that's you know i guess where, where we come in and what we're passionate about yeah you know the average hectare or acre or whatever you, you know identification you want to use is is about one fifth as productive in most of africa as it is in um you know in the us or, or the uk and um you know we'd like to help change that mm. do you have any views on on lab grown foods I mean, to be honest, I don't know enough about it. It's 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 not something that we we touch very sure, much every sure. day. Sure, I just mean um, in general. Um, I mean, I, I genuinely don't know enough about it yeah. to comment. I just wonder if I mean, a lot of people say that if they can get the cost down for that, then there's a real viable alternative for for this mass production of especially meat farming. Yeah, I mean, I guess the theory is, is is definitely there. I mean, we are. I mean, again, people probably want to just turn a blind eye to this stuff, but we are. The global population is growing at a rate which is unsustainable for the farming we currently have, and so one way or other, new solutions have to be found. Yeah, I suspect the solution will be catastrophic, and it'll be climate change. Well, yeah. and particularly to for people to adopt a Western quality of life, and that's that's the biggest. I mean. Uh, I remember going to India and thinking, thank God that Im- embedded within the religion is to not eat beef for for most people because right. that's would be just 
beyond reason to be able to try and supply that. And the problem is, is if you address the issue of, of population and just saying there simply will be too many people on planet Earth, and some people go, oh, would you suggest genocide? And it's like, of course not, of mm. course not. But we, we need a solution, otherwise we're going to bump into it head first. Um, James from Lab Genius said it's a bit like bacteria in a petri dish, and eventually there's not enough agar jelly for them to sit and feed off. And mm. it's not then there's no prejudice about who gets wiped out. Then it's just simply people people in the it's, equator. It's just like an ecosystem, and in an ecosystem, when it reaches a capacity point, it yeah they can't collapses. sustain things, and if people think things can't, so maybe the solution is go to Mars. Well, that, we're trying something like, something like that. Elon's on it, I think. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Elon and Jeff, Jeff are having a are having a race. <laughs> something that actually I think is really interesting about what culturally you've done with We Farm is Africa is a hugely complicated place in terms of religious beliefs, tribal beliefs, national borders, and stuff. And you're getting this cohesion, um, presumably independently of of any of those factors of people just coming together, which I think is kind of awesome everyone's got to eat yeah but isn't it nice that technology is actually because what we have a problem with with like twitter is people form these sort of sentiment silos and then argue with each other but actually it's this is technology in the truest sense of bringing people together presumably of all different walks and backgrounds yeah i mean i think it's 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 something that we we have actually and probably this is why it's been successful is we haven't actually really thought about that side of things too much mm. um, we've just let people um use it naturally we've also obviously tried to you know make sure that the community is is respectful and we actually find like always the most powerful way to do that is have the community police itself and you know when people ask you know inappropriate questions or spam which you know obviously the scale we're operating well not necessarily a lot but even a small percentage is is you know, a lot when you're doing things at a big scale um but people you know very quickly this is not appropriate content for we farm this right. is a farming network please only ask a farming question and oh. that, that actually gives me a lot of pride to see people defending this this thing that they they feel proud of um and yeah i mean we you know we've one of the questions i remember asking you know when we first set up we farm was uh, you know, when we send an answer to somebody, should we include a name? Um, will people start to to draw conclusions just from the name and disregard advice? Yeah. You know, you know, say in, in certain cultures uh, where it might be that they, a woman's advice wouldn't be as listened to as a man's advice, yeah. or you know, certain names might give away certain like kind of religious origins or whatever. Um, uh, and you know, we we decided to go for it and just give a name, and actually, no one batted an eyelid. And, really, you know, that's so cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we we kind of went with the natural approach to these things because uh, I think as soon as you start trying to divide people even with good intention yeah you know it snowballs uh, and mm. you know some of the stuff that you're seeing coming out of facebook or some of the big social networks twitter has been dragged right. through the mud um with their interview with joe rogan about policing um who can get deplatformed right and, and it's like they're, they're caught in a really difficult thing where they're not deferring to the u.s law which is the country of origin where they're founded and they're not they're, they are becoming their own jurisdiction over a huge user base right and it's very difficult to get right because you're always going to upset somebody. Right. I think people underestimate just how difficult it is when you're dealing with a billion people like Facebook. I think some genuinely bad stuff has gone on at Facebook. and uh, But I suspect that quite a lot of it just started with good intention and nobody quite realized how this would affect things at a billion people. I mean, yeah. no, no one's done it before. You're not a car manufacturer, you know, you know, building it on top of a hundred years of car building knowledge, you're, you're kind of more like, you know, Henry Ford doing this for the first time, mm, yeah. which I, I don't think excuses a lot of the stuff that's gone on, but I think there is just an element of, but know, he would have dealt with like motor car deaths. It would have been like, oh shit, we've created this vehicle. Now people are crashing it. Right. What do we do now? It's like, of course there's going to be issues with, with big visions. Um, I but think the scale is just inconceivable yeah, before right. it's just, so even I mean, there's one of my favorite Twitter uh, TED talks. Sorry, is um, um, one of the head of security at Twitter um, who outlining that I think a one in a million incident happens in Twitter like every eight seconds. 
you know, a one in a billion incident happens several times a day. Uh, you know, just the scale of this is inconceivable. And actually, our minds are not set up to be able to think about uh, this. No. We're saying when you're dealing with this kind of scale, even if 0.001% of stuff is anomalous or bad, you know, it's still, that's going to be a, a lot of things. Right. Um, and on our compressed time sense, that feels highly frequent. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think so I have a belief that this is why people are becoming so emotional because you just data overload that you can't take an objective viewpoint if you try because all sides of the argument are being presented at almost all times at all instances in, in yeah. incalculable numbers as well. And so people just carve through all of this data with just emotion and, and vitriol and they get angry about stuff because how else do you navigate it? You can't absorb it. It's not, it doesn't exist on a human, so you know, it's like we're talking like beyond terabytes of data per second. It's, you, you of course these they, these platforms are facing just like mind-boggling issues right but so like at its core like knowledge sharing is one of the most powerful tools yeah that we can have and like that's you know it's the whole Yuval Noah Harari thing about stories and that's how stories get passed on generations it's how we learn ethics how, how we learn farming you know it's why Hesiod in can't remember ninth, ninth century BC wrote the Works and Days, which is an, uh, an early Greek hexameter poem yeah. about agricultural techniques, and like this is like the culmination of that, and it's that knowledge sharing done right, but in the, we farm, but mm. in, uh, in other areas like Twitter, where it's just everything, like how do you then police, like how do you make, how do you make Twitter a force for good, like very hard because yeah you can't manage it no but, one can manage but your it. revenue model is tied into something that actually affects the users in a real world sense the problem is when advertising comes in the yeah. business model then yeah. it's, it's corrupted at the the core so your network expands but you can help them with real commoditized product i think the issue with facebook is, or, or with twitter it's like ugh, you have right. to make revenue for your shareholders yeah what's that going to come at the expense of right and and we are going to face some of the same challenges as well. I mean, we have you know obviously good intention in this, and you know, but we it's it's not some you know golden space where, where we're not going to face any problems at all. You know, we we have a social mission at the heart of what we do, but we have to keep coming back to that as an organization. And I think it's very easy to to take decisions with good intention. Again, if you extrapolate it out to you know 100 million users, it might not be as good. Mm -hmm. So it's you true. know, something as a as a company that we we want to come back to again and again, and and you know, it doesn't mean we don't have problems. But I mean, like, how would you? The, the consequence of you deplatforming a user is like now it could be like their rural livelihood and their farm. Whereas you know in Twitter, if you deplatform it, it's like I don't have my soapbox to stand on. So you, I guess, it's going to be complicated decisions for you if somebody's abusing the system. But actually, then in doing that, they sort of go um, into the abyss and can't get that knowledge. Yeah, I mean, just even more simply than that, I mean, we, we're obviously sharing peer-to-peer -peer knowledge. You know, not a hundred percent of which can always be right. Um, you know, we try to do as much as we can to ensure that we are always connecting the most appropriate people, that we are filtering out, um, you know, bad content and, and such like. But, you know, again, obviously the scale we operate on, that, that's impossible to do 100%. Um, mm. uh, and, you know, occasionally farmers get uh, erroneous content from us. And that's, you know, something we feel passionate about trying to, to fix and, and get better at. But you obviously cannot just succeed 100% at the time. Sure. Um, but, you know, we also look at the hundreds and hundreds and thousands of farmers that get positive information. And, um, you know, these these are the type of problems that I think all big tech startups you yeah. know, face. When the fact that you've gone from, I think you said, was it 35, 40% correct to 85% now? So 35% answered within an hour to, to about 80% answered in an hour. Correctly. Well, it's, it's, it's kind yeah. of impossible for us okay, to say 100% sure, okay. uh, correctly, but yeah, I mean, I think we, we definitely know that a lot of that information is a lot better than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Do you have net producers of answers? So is it just a core body that produces a, lot, a disproportionately high number of, of responses? 
Yeah, so I mean, obviously, if you look across the user base, there's people who are you know only ever passive users. There's people who answer a lot, people who ask a lot, people who are kind of in the middle, which I guess mm. the users mm. I, I, I really like personally. I probably shouldn't have biases in these things. But <laughs> um, you know, we're also now seeing that we're building the marketplace um, that users who haven't necessarily used the question and answer system a lot, but instantly value in the and uh, being able to access good quality products. You know, we did a user who, I think there were 4,000th farmer to sign up sometime back in 2015. I think it only ever used the information system twice in all of that time. Uh, but since uh, a wee farm outlet opened near them, they've used it four times in the space of uh, three weeks. Right. Um, so, so you know, I think, again, going back to that value proposition, ra rather than advertising and say, we're just going to spam people with random adverts of actually building your, your revenue model on a value for your user. Mm. Okay, so to move to the, the quick file on now. Um, so can we have a prediction for the future? I, I think I'd like to say my prediction for the future is that the venture capital and the, the, the tech industry will get much more interested in Africa and emerging markets. I think it's something you've started to see, but I think there's still a lot of skepticism. Um, and, you know, we found in our fundraising still a lot of resistance. Um, you know, not often uh, a, a lot of venture and venture capital or not as much as we'd like to think. Uh, so that's my prediction over the next 10 years that the people really will buy into to the emerging market tech scene and, and back it. Mm -hmm. uh, and is that, so we know that China, we were talking earlier before the progress that they've invested heavily in in those markets. Do you think the, the Western impetus is going to come from venture capital or from like government? Well, I mean, I, I think you are starting to see more venture capital get interested in this stuff. But yeah, when, when you know, I obviously spend quite a lot of time in East Africa in particular, and the amount of Chinese investment coming in is is, is huge yeah. uh, and very visible. And, uh, you know, there's there's almost a sense for me, I think, that we're that the Western world is kind of getting a little left behind. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, you talked earlier about huge emerging young generation in Africa, you know, whatever, 30% of the population under 15, you know, this is the future. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to we need to get on it. Yeah, well, Founders Factory, you know, have you been to Founders Factory before? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, they've just opened an office in... South Africa. Yeah, but it's meant as a... Yeah, African, as a node. Yeah. I think the other thing is that how much of, I mean, you know, I, I think Western venture capital is one thing, but how much of this exciting tech scene is coming out of Africa? You know, we're right. not seeing, okay. you know, definitely don't want to, to paint a picture of, you know, needing Western world, um, you know, you know, potentially money. Uh, mm. But it's it's not a question of Western startups going to Africa. I think, you know, you, you spend any time in Nairobi, there's so much tech talent. There's so much entrepreneurialism. Mm. There's, you know, great companies starting to emerge, um, you know, in the tech industry from it, Africa. In all is, sorts of sectors. All sorts of sectors, but you know, particularly we've seen the likes of Vandela, um, you know, here who are raising huge amounts of money, you know, branch, uh, you know, a lot of really cool companies, you know, Jumia, you know, some some controversy over whether they should be considered an Africa com company mm -hmm. or not, but you know, they've just been floated. Um and yeah. you're starting to see, you know, actually these big unicorns emerge, um, you know, not from, you know, within ten miles of San Francisco, but you know, from 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 different parts of the world. Right. And I think that that's the sense that this is going to happen uh, and you know venture capital needs to connect to yeah so that but they're not spe necessarily specific to because when i was out there in, in january um the friends i were with are quite engaged in, in the tech scene the london tech scene but they were talking about conservation tech so i just wondered whether the tech that you're talking about out there is based like fo focused on the problems 
on the ground there. I, I think probably less. I think a lot of the stuff we hear about in the Western world is, is again, it ties into this, you know, kind of image we have in our head of Africa, you know, Bob Geldof videos and, yeah. you know, that we, we need to be solving mm-hmm. problems. And I think, meanwhile, huge amounts of tech industry in Africa is just getting on with it and building, mm-hmm. you know, almost replica systems, you know, the kind of WeChat equivalents in China, you know, Jumia, the you know, online marketplace in Africa, you know, all of these things that are just, you know, things that people want to use. A lot of them are focused on, on solving problems and are obviously particularly relevant to the, the people that are using them, whether it's in Nigeria or, yeah. or, or in the other side of the continent. But, you know, there's there's some pretty exciting stuff happening. We've got an interesting view over the supply chain. So the AI and world map that I created, we saw, um, we, we get basically see 112,000 proposals come through a year. And there was like 2,500 um, in Kenya last year. And we're tracking the numbers pick up per country in Africa year on year. So you, you are even seeing the number of entrepreneur proposals. So an entrepreneur proposal is not strictly speaking the linked to a good idea. It's just somebody putting up a pitch, but it's growing. And there, there were like 55 in Chad last year. And so it's like there, we can see their entrepreneur scene emerging. Right. And um, we have no visibility out there. Well, it's quite Instagram. scary because on the investor side of things, we're, we're incredibly hesitant to, to deal with local investors because it's, it's not out of prejudice. It's just knowing where we are ignorant mm. and we simply are ignorant. And as you say, with Western venture capital, there's all sorts of complexities, which is if you have China being invested in, let's say, big infrastructure and mining projects, who then is lo- lobbying the government? Who's in whose pocket, basically? And, and is that still the case? Because you're right, to some degree, we might be projecting issues with the government in certain countries that may not even exist anymore, but yeah. they're just sort of a, a legacy of old that we believe there's corruption there, but it's because we just don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I've, I've literally spent the last four or five weeks fundraising in, in both San Francisco and, and Europe. And, you know, it's one of the big pushbacks we've had is that, you know, we love what you're doing, love the traction, but we don't know enough about your market. Um, and I, I guess part of you know what I try to suggest is I think you know obviously there's 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 risk in that, but mm. where there's risk, there's also return. And I think you know venture capital needs to start looking at these things a little more closely. Mm. Um, you know, it's there there are some great venture capital firms in Africa, but you know there needs to be more capital available to the great technology that's coming out of of local African uh, cities and, and and people. Yeah, we'll try and keep the other ones quick fire. Um, I'm going to add one in. Is there another ag tech startup? that you think is really exciting? None other. No, no, none other. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's a really exciting space. I mean, obviously, it's, it's you know, a billion people, as yeah. we said before. So there's a ton of really exciting happen, uh, things happening. Um, you know, a really good uh, company we know in Germany called Plantix um, that have uh, an app which you can take a photograph of a leaf um, with a smartphone and it tells you what disease the plant might have. Mm, um, wow. Some really cool computer vision stuff on, on that side of things. Lots of people building marketplaces and yeah. ways for farmers to connect with each other and, and markets and products. Um, you know, it, it's almost like four years ago when we started in this and fundraising for the first time, we were almost the only people doing right. this at any scale. And then suddenly it's transforming and people are waking up to, oh, this is a billion people. It's a, it's a big area. Yeah, but that's what's so cool about VC is like, yeah, within four years, a, a, a set of industries can change. Yeah. Because as you say, now everybody's sort of wanting to get into impact. Is there a, a startup book or, or any book that you found particularly useful as a resource? I, I mean, a lot. I, I, I'm a, a pretty voracious reader. Okay, so well, to, to any, get, many the, the of most, them. The most interesting thing I've read recently is, is called Everybody Lies. Um, <laughs> I've read it. Uh, I, I guess the premise is, is looking into the big data through Google and Facebook and, you know, the premise being that everybody lies to Facebook and, you know, portrays this image of their life and everybody tells the truth to Google and it's incredible what people type into that little uh, little right. box. Um, um, but some of the stuff that, that, that they're able to look at um, across whole societies, um, you know, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I, I'd thoroughly recommend 
recommend it if you're interested in the internet and big data. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a fascinating read. Oh, cool. And the final one is scrubbed out, and I was I always forget it, but you know it because I asked you before. It's, yeah. What's the best advice you've 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 given or or, or received? Uh, well, definitely not given. That would, that, would a, that would be a short list. Uh, I, take it back to actually in the fundraising thing. Um, one of our internal investors, ADV, and, and, and Keith Tier. Um, you know, when we were raising our last round, actually, um, his, his big advice to us was, "You've got to tell investors what winning looks like early." Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, it's simple advice, but it's actually it's 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 really pertinent. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and now when I look at a lot of startup decks, um, you know, from earlier stage companies with, with us, particularly in the UK. There's not a lot of people that actually say early, this is what happens when we win. Yeah. Um, you know, I think his, his other way of phrasing that was you've got to put dollar signs in investors' eyes in the first three <laughs> slides. Yeah. Uh, I, I should steal this from my General Assembly. You should do my General Assembly yeah. talk. This is <laughs> way it's better advice on. than I'd give. And you see this in, in Silicon Valley startups, you know, really quickly say, This is what happens if 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 Netflix is used by 100 million people this is what it looks like mm. uh, and i think netflix was actually one of the examples he used right where i think a lot of you know it's very british to say oh well you know we're doing this and that but yeah. you know maybe in slide 15 they have uh, this is our big vision so you know just really early in the deck say this is what we do and this is what it happens when we win that's awesome i, I like love that, that. yeah that's fantastic well and last but not least actually we like to ask our listeners what they can do to help you on your journey if there's anything you could ask them? Uh, I mean, the biggest thing for us at the moment is we're, we're hiring, um, uh, as always. So I think we've got about 10 roles live at the moment, both technical and non-technical, um, both in Africa and in, yeah, in London. Um, yeah. So, you know, we have offices uh, here and in, in a few different African cities. So, you know, we're looking for awesome people to come and uh, join this journey with us. Um, so have a look, share. I feel um, like it's an easy sell for yeah. anybody wanting a different, yeah. a really cool company to work for. Definitely. Definitely. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I love I love the company and I loved being able to interview you. So I really appreciate you coming here, Kenny. Ah, thank you. Pleasure, Thanks, Kenny. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike M I C, or get us an email audioed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally. This recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.